0: To Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm the director for the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Today's event is the first of our new look and the name, a new name, for our public event series. Since April 2020, more than 100,000 people have tuned in um, or watched uh, the YouTube or followed our podcast. It's a lot of folks, And so we're taking the opportunity to come up with this new name, Dialogue Across Difference, which captures our mission. Our mission is to bring multiple perspectives on the key issues of the day and to create an opportunity to have a conversation, to learn and listen across our differences. So that's what we're all about. And I'm really excited for today's conversation because it fits perfectly. Welcome and thank you for joining today's program. Are you ready for the 2022 elections? Our guest today, Rebecca Piercy, who is vice president at the political consulting firm Bryson and Gillette. Ms. Piercy is involved in 29 Senate, House, and gubernatorial elections in the upcoming election season. She has steered hundreds of campaigns and was the political director and senior advisor for Senator. Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. We're also joined by Kirsten Kukowski, who's president of K2 and Company. This is a 100% owned business by women that's operated um, in the Twin Cities. Previously, Ms. Kukowski spent five years the national press secretary for the Republican National Committee. She was communications director for Governor Scott Walker's presidential campaign and was the communications director for the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Let's just start off because there may be some people wondering, really 2022, aren't we just seven or eight months after the, the, the really raucous 2020 20 election uh, back in November? Why does the, the strategy and thinking about the 2022 election matter now. Ms. Kakowski, do you want to start us off?
1: Sure. Um- I know it sounds it sounds silly to be talking about politics and I know that when the promotion for this event came started to come out um, I was asked the same question the reality is you know I know that some of us live and breathe um, politics all day long 24 7 365 um, but the reality is right now it's, it's very important in terms of how people in Washington and frankly people in St. Paul are thinking about Getting things done, whether in a bipartisan fashion or not, um, because it all relates to the midterm elections next year. And so things like the infrastructure bill um, in Washington, D.C., very important calculus happening right now uh, with Mitch McConnell coming out in support for the infrastructure bill, while many people in his caucus not wanting to give uh, uh, President Biden a win. And so I look at those very key things and just how people um, are calculating their moves even today um, as it pertains to next November.
0: Ms. Piercy, can you give us some specific examples of how Democrats in Congress are factoring in 2022 um, as they're you know, kind of plotting and voting in, in Washington now?
2: Sure. Well, I I first want to echo Kirsten. It's only 464 days until Election Day 2022. (laughs) And with early votes starting earlier and earlier in lots of these states, I do think it's it's time for us in August of 2021 to start thinking about what will happen in 2022. And for Democrats, it's incredibly important for us to um, put forth an agenda that our incumbents can vote on um, and take back to their districts. So they're talking a lot about, like Kirsten said, the infrastructure package. They're talking a lot about the um, $300 child tax credit that is going to parents at a certain income level and working with closely with the Biden administration to make sure that folks know that this democratic trifecta in Washington is delivering for American families up and down uh, up and down, it's, it's everywhere, right? It's not just in blue states or red states, but it's happening all across the country.
0: So when, when we read and see um, progressives uh, really pushing the case for even more, and you hear even Democrats saying, whoa, this is, you're going too far. Is that partly because the progressives are thinking it's now, or you know maybe not for years, we've got to get this program in um, because the likelihood of our power Weakening um, after 22 is is quite significant.
2: I, I don't know if I would say it's it's that the power of the party would be weakening, but I think we all know that the realities of a a Democratic or Republican trifecta here in Washington is really unlikely, right? And so I think it's important for Democrats as a whole to recognize this opportunity to deliver for our constituents constituents on a, an agenda that we all can agree
0: on. And so there's also been pressure, um, even quite open public pressure on uh, Supreme Court Justice um, uh, Breyer to step down, retire. Um, and it's partly this well trifecta, but in this case, the president and the Senate being controlled by Democrats. Is that another kind of reflection of this anticipation of what might happen in the fall of 22?
2: Yeah, I think, look, Democrats are scarred from from the Trump administration's unwillingness to seat a ninth Supreme Court justice in the case of Merrick Garland and then pushing through um, Kavanaugh and uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So I think that, you know, it's well-founded sort of fear, I guess you could call it, but it's, it's also, uh, I think, more progressive and less pragmatic Democrats that are calling for this push for Breyer to step down at this point.
0: But they are anticipating that come uh, November 22, they They may not have the power they have now.
2: Oh, sure. There's always a chance. Always a chance. right,
0: um, Ms. Kukowski, um, I'm curious um, if you see Democrats, um, because of this anticipation of the fall of 22 elections, maybe not going well for them and the odds of that, um, you know, setting themselves up for a trap whereas they, they need to get as much as they can now. But as they do that, does that create an opportunity for Republicans who are gonna portray Democrats as socialists or overreaching?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's always a risk, frankly, on either side of the aisle. And I think that Nancy Pelosi, um, is very good at managing that. And she has a very, very tough uh, job on her hands between now and the next midterms, because I think you see, um, I think there was a tweet from AOC the other day, um, directly at Senator Sinema um, about, just getting the infrastructure bill done and some other progressive things. And so I think that that tug is very real and it's something that you're gonna see, you know, discussed very often. You obviously also have the reality that a Supreme Court um, kind of fight or nomination is a very good thing for both partisan bases, right? And so if you're a Democrat's looking toward the midterm elections in 22, and there's a chance that you could have a nominee, it, that's a very interesting base Um, motivation issue for them. Um, And Republicans right now, and you, you do see this historically, the party that loses the White House two years later, generally the motivation is on, is on their side. And so Republicans, I'd say, you know, for a lot of, different reasons, the makeup of the House and wh- where the seats are that they currently have, um, but also just that motivation piece. I think right now, if the election were today, I think most people predict that, that would, that's you would go towards the Republicans. So anyway, back to your question, yes, I think that there is risk of overreach. And I think that that is something that you're going to see Nancy Pelosi really monitor very, very closely.
0: And she's going to be monitoring that because, of course, her um, majority rests on a relatively small number of seats that are not bright blue. These are, you know, hard-fought seats and kind of areas where swing voters are really going to matter, um, and possibly an election that doesn't really favor Democrats. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah, there's. I think there's like probably seven or so um, Trump dis- so districts that congressional districts where President Trump or former President Trump. Won those districts even last election, and there's there, but there's Democrats sitting in those seats. One of them is just across the river in Wisconsin. Uh, Ron Kind has been in Congress for decades, um, and is one of the top targets. Um, and he has a rematch again this time around. And so I think when you're Nancy Pelosi, and you see that see that map, I think that that's where you have a little bit of heartburn when you have your progressive um, side of the party kind of pulling one direction, and you have Ron Kind sitting in a seat, um, that is very likely to go Republican this time around.
0: And Miss Piercy, do you see uh, the Democrats as split uh, between these two factions, progressives, you know, AOC sitting in a, in an ultra safe district in, in the heart of New York City, versus you know the Democrats like Ron Kind who are, you know, really um, you know going to be vulnerable. They're going to be targeted, um, and they could well lose in twenty twenty two. Is that define the split in the Democratic Party?
2: I, I think it's less of a split and more of a difference. And here's why: I think that Democrats get to rally around the Biden agenda. No matter if you're a socialist Democrat or if you're a a very uh, more conservative Democrat or a blue dog Democrat, as we like to call them, like a Ron Kind or somebody that's in a probably more, let's say, bluer, purpler, purple, purple reddish kind of a district like a like a Wisconsin seat like his. I think that the difference between Republicans and Democrats on those splits are, are are pretty significant in that there are still. Trump-ish Republicans who are not sort of jumping on board with any of the uh, programs that are being given out as economic recovery programs due to COVID. And then there are Republicans that are embracing them, right? And so there's, in my mind, there's more of a split between the Republican Party and like the the wings there than there is in the Democratic Party, only in that we get to, we are all aligned message-wise on what what's happening and what we're able to bring back to our constituents.
0: And Ms. Kukowski, it's true that the Democrats are talked about in terms of the splits and the tensions and AOC um, is a very popular um, uh, source of of CNN coverage uh, and Fox too, uh, because she tends to be um, a flashpoint. But do you see these tensions within the Republican Party as you look at it uh, between those who are you know, I was just reading some focus groups with with Trump supporters who are now benefiting from um, Obamacare, and they say things like, "Well, I'm really sorry, but I had cancer and I really needed the Affordable Care Act to help pay the bills." Versus those who are, you know, ready to jump on a bonfire for Donald Trump and follow his work. Is that a real tension?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a real real tension in the party. I think you still have the dynamic where you have the the, the tried and true Trump. Um, Republicans. And then I think you have some Republicans who were the never Trumpers, but I think you also have a subset of people who Um, They maybe held their nose last time around, but I think after January 6th, I think that changed some things. And I think that they're looking for some, you know, something different from the party. And so I do think that that is something that we're going to go through, probably less so in the midterms. I I think that that's probably more of a 2024 conversation. And you're already seeing that play out in Iowa. Um, We're going to have a very large um, cast of, um, you know, candidates who are going to be running, um, against Biden, um, in 24. And so I think that's probably when that's going to play out more than it is going to be in the midterms. I think you're going to see more of the Trump influence of the party play out, um, strong, like in a stronger way in the midterms, just because of what I was talking about earlier with the dynamics in the house. Um, but that said, when you look at the, at the Senate, the U S Senate and, and what the path is, um, to, for the Republicans to maybe take back the Senate, then maybe that calculus is a little different, Um,
0: so. So I'm gonna ask you, uh, Ms. Koukowsky, about uh, Donald Trump and his influence as we move towards 2022. There's a sense that, you know, Donald Trump um, is this kind of political Goliath. um, And certainly in terms of fundraising, he seems to be, um, you know, literally a golden ticket. Um, And I noticed that a lot of the RNC uh, committees love to do, you know, Trump, Uh, themed uh, fundraisers. And, and, and Mr. Trump himself has done quite well. Um, You know, perhaps 100 million in his, his war chest. But do you feel like there's a bit of the the tides are shifting on Donald Trump that, that there are limits to what he can do, and that people in Washington are beginning to kind of assess where he's influential, um, and and kind of pick and choose their spots? Um, What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean for sure, and I think you're seeing this play out in a lot of his endorsements that he's making in House and Senate races for the midterms across the country. Um, last week he had what was, for, you know, seen as a loss um, in that he endorsed a candidate for whom did not win, um, and but then last night in Ohio that he had what some people are saying was a win. Um, I think it's going to come down to where you're so if you know if you're working on a political campaign I think the calculus is a lot geographic and a lot of it is just you know are you working in a seat that that was a a Trump seat in 2020 and then you're going to probably you know have a different calculus than if you're going to be in a little bit more of a you know toss-up area and so I think it's I think it's too early to know for sure, but I think that there are definite questions, which signals that maybe, you know, some of his influence is waning. Fundraising, though, I will say, um, the committees are going to keep working out, working through the fundraising because that is definitely uh, his his biggest strength.
0: Uh, Ms. Piercy, I'm noticing that the Democrats uh, appear to still be running against Donald Trump. I hear his name being mentioned by all the Democrats. Joe Biden was in Virginia, which have, of course has a very important gubernatorial race coming in November. And uh, Joe Biden couldn't, couldn't stop himself from constantly comparing Republican opponent who uh, defeated the Trumpers to win the Republican nomination. Um, and comparing this Republican nominee to Donald Trump, You know, you, I'm just waiting for the ads in which the Trump face and the Republican candidate face. Is that the Republican strategy? You, you. I mean, um, Ms. Kakowski is saying Republicans would love to pick and choose where Donald Trump is a, a factor, but maybe Democrats would just love to just do a redo of 2020.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I also want to echo something that Kirsten said: the national committees will continue using Donald Trump as a fundraising tactic until until we stop raising money because of it. It is a. It is a. Rallying cry for Democrats, and it is not incumbent on Democrats to pick and choose where Donald Trump was popular or what candidates supported him. I think that what you saw in Virginia with President Biden there with Terry McAuliffe is probably it's it's a it's a an omen for what you will likely see, um, particularly in these 2021 races where we've got um, legislative races and gubernatorials in Virginia and uh, New Jersey, but also some of these races um as we get lines and they are in a little bit more of a swingy area i think that we will start to dig in and figure out where where actually maybe it is that we talk about what um where trump is effective and where he's not because once we get new lines i think that whole dynamic could change but at this point, if it's a statewide, and especially in a place like Virginia, it's really easy to tie Glenn Youngkin to Trump because he doesn't say, I, I wasn't for Trump.
0: We're going to come back to this, <coughs> excuse me, in a moment. But when uh, Ms. Pierce, is referring to lines, she's referring to the redrawing or redistricting of um, legislative seats. We'll get to that a little bit later. But the main thing I want to just draw out is you can see this, this nuanced difference between Republicans. Would like to localize races, control where Donald Trump is coming in and can be most helpful. Um, And the Democrats who would just like to redo 2020, at least at this point, and nationalize the race as a referendum on Donald Trump. And by the way, Donald Trump is not in office, in case you've forgotten that. So this is a really, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting project. Um, I want to ask about um, where we are. Um, and kind of our expectations about the midterm elections. Um, the general story about midterm elections is it's bad for the in-party, meaning the party that controls the White House. In this case, it would be the Democrats. Historically, going back to 1946, the average loss in the House is 26 seats. That varies a little bit about the popularity of the president, but um, you can hear already in this conversation this presumption that November 22 is going to probably be pretty tough for Democrats um, and will create real opportunities um, for Republicans. Ms. Piercy, is that the way you see the midterm elections that you guys are kind of uh, behind the eight ball?
2: On the defense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, It's a challenge, it will be a challenge to hold everything. I think it's going to be a challenging Senate situation. And then once we figure out what these lines look like for the congressional map, I think it gets even more challenging as our incumbents are figuring out new districts, as we're going through recruitment with candidates in districts, and we don't actually know how how they will perform in a midterm election or any election for that matter. But I do think that um, you know it's it, it can't be as bad as 2010. So like, hopefully, that's like that's like where my head is, right? It can't be as bad as 2010 when Democrats lost 63 or 64 seats in the House. And I do think that you know these cycles, even the 10-year cycle, has its own cycle, and it is it is very indicative of what will happen. And so I think a lot of Democrats are anticipating that this is what we will lose seats in both the House and the Senate. And then this is the push to get everything done. But there's also the upside of this, which is we have everything. We know what this part of the cycle looks like. We should really get our stuff together and figure out how to start messaging now so that we're not behind the eight ball when the new lines do come out. In some states, it will be as soon as August 16th in other states we won't have actual lines drawn until mid-March when elections are right up upon us. So I think it's incumbent on us to like continue this push to talk through the Biden agenda and how Democrats are delivering for Americans and to stay very disciplined in that messaging throughout the redistricting process.
0: So folks, if you're following this and you started off wondering you're really talking about 2022, you can see, you know as we pull back the curtains that there's a lot of work, a lot of thinking um, and frankly, a lot of money being spent to plan for it. Um, Ms. Kakowski, are, are Republicans particularly optimistic about the midterm elections because of their control over the line drawing or redistricting um, in so many parts of the country?
1: I would say, um, yes, I think we are. Sorry, I'm trying to get rid of something on my screen. <laughs> there, sorry about that, distracting um okay so uh, particularly optimistic i think that the republican party in general does better in midterm elections um that's not a hundred percent but i think in general i think that there was there i think we the republican party made some inroads uh in the house last cycle that were unexpected and i think if you are continue to follow on that on those coattails i think especially with all the dynamics um, with with the Biden White House um, and the the party in power generally um, losing seats in the midterm. I think that there's room for, um, for the Republican party to be optimistic. Um, I will say though, I think COVID is a big um, unknown. We don't know exactly how that's going to play into everything. I think redistricting is a huge unknown. We don't know how that's going to play into everything. Um, and then I would say too, I feel like a lot of the conversation has probably been more focused on on the House because I think that that is a little bit more clearer um, right now than the, than the Senate. And I look at the um, the the U.S. Senate race right across the river in Wisconsin, um, and I think that that is been moved to a toss-up seat. And I think that those dynamics, I think we're going to be seeing more and more as we get closer. So I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there's optimism, especially in the House. I think there's just some there's just some unknowns this far out that we don't really know exactly what this is going to look like. I want like. to
0: get into some of those individual races, particularly in the Senate. But before we do, uh, Miss Piercy, I hear so many Democrats, um, you know, when I'm out giving a talk, they'll say, wait, we have all these great things we've done. And they'll talk about the coronavirus uh, package. They'll talk about um, the the administration's response to getting the shots in the arms with regards to COVID. They're looking at uh, Republican governors, um, in some cases, putting up roadblocks um, as we have this latest surge with the Delta variant. Can can Democrats win with that kind of positive, good news message? Or is the environment that we're talking about just uh, you know, puts Democrats at a disadvantage? And if so, what is it about that environment in particular that uh, makes you nervous about November?
2: So I think we all need a little good news. And so I, I will give it to Democrats and let them have it, that they they get to go out and message on all of the good things that the Biden uh, administration and and our Congress is, is putting forth. Um, look, I I think there's going to be bad news, right? There always is bad news and it's not, it's not a, I don't think it will be something that is caused by the administration. It will be something that is a function of just life, whether that's the Delta variant picking, picking up steam or whatever the next variant is picking up steam. I think Kirsten's right that redistricting puts another wrinkle in how we calibrate our messaging. And when we sort of recalibrate what the next phase of this messaging Um, trajectory is, and I think that that should make everybody nervous. Both parties should be nervous about not knowing when to shift or how to shift or what to shift to because there are so many unknowns. So it's pandemic life. It is um, the redistricting piece of this, and it's also, I I think, part of this is who's going to run, and that, that goes for the Senate races, the House races, as the presidential primary starts heating up even earlier than ever before on the Republican side. I think all of those sets of dynamics go into making everybody a little bit queasy about what November 2022 looks like.
0: So so let me just dig in a little bit on this environment that that leads you to say, expect bad news, uh, which is sobering. Um, I don't know anything,
2: I don't know, but like, you know, it can't all be good news, right? It's Murphy's law, Professor, it's Murphy's law, that's all.
0: Okay, but let's dig in a little bit on this. Um, And Ms. Koukowsky referred to this. Turnout among Democratic voters in midterm elections dips. It dips more than among Republicans. Um, Why does that happen?
2: I don't think we know the answer, but I know that we are doing a better job as Democrats and with the party committees at digging into who voted in our last midterm in 2018 and then also in 2020. So we're figuring out data points for who are these people and what motivates them. And as we are figuring these things out, we're also figuring out that we need to do a better job communicating our persuasion messages before shifting them to a mobilization message. So talking to them about what we're doing and then transitioning them from, okay, well, we're talking about what we're going to do. Like now, can we count on your support? Will you turn out for XYZ Democratic candidates? And so I think that there's been a lot of research and a lot of thoughtful reach research done on the Democratic side to figure out the psyche behind midterm voters and how do we unlock that? Because we recognize that Republicans have, have consistently done better in these midterms.
0: And let me just ask you one other question, which is about the kind of overall environment. There are about 60% of Americans who still say the country's off on the wrong track rather than, um, uh, you know, kind of heading in the right direction. Um, that is just hostile to incumbents, right? Yeah, it
2: is. It is, which is, it, it's it's hostile to incumbents, but it's also hostile to people in office. So if you're a county commissioner and you think you're going to run for Congress, it's just as tough as if you're the guy in Congress, right? And so it is sort of an outsider's game at this point in some of these races where you've got a person who's a community activist who can say, I I can deliver, I'm not part of the problem in Washington or Little Rock or wherever else there might be the seat of power.
0: Um, Ms. Kaskowski, did you wanna add anything to this conversation about the environment?
1: Yeah, I would just say one thing I was thinking and I meant to say it um, with my last, your last question. And I think it applies here too. I think one thing that I that a lot of people have been kind of looking at in terms of the environment and, and just whether or not the Democrat Party can tell the story that they want to tell is that President Biden's approval ratings. So wrong, right track, wrong track has been has been moving a little bit more than his approval ratings and his approval ratings um, are hovering right around 50 percent and they're not moving very much. And in, on one hand, that is positive, right? He's seen as a very stable um, president, which is very different than are the last four years um, in terms of approval ratings. But on the other hand, it's, you know, does he have that thing that he needs to be able to sell the country on what he's doing? And right now, I think that's a big question because a lot of these house races are gonna be directly tied to his approval rating and whether or not he can talk about what he's doing on COVID and on infrastructure if that gets done. Um, so I think that that is just one thing that you know, has, is, there, he, there still have time, the White House still has time, but you know back to the why are we talking about this in, April, or in August of 21, it takes a ton of time to move a messaging ship in the right direction and sustain it for all of the Americans to actually absorb, and they're going to need every minute and every second that they can get to do so it. I,
0: I'm glad you raised that because I found it curious that where the Democrats can't talk more, you know, enough about Donald Trump when they're out on the campaign trail, you don't hear a whole lot of conversation among Republicans about about Joe Biden. I hear a whole lot about socialism overreach, you know, crime, inflation. I mean, all those kind of issues. But when it comes to Joe Biden, it, he, he doesn't seem to be a top target among Republicans. Is that accurate?
1: There really there aren't that many negatives. Right. You have to focus on the big spending. You have to focus on socialism. You have to you know, focus on the lack of freedom around covid regulations. I mean, th- those are all the things. But that you're right. That isn't. isn't necessarily President Biden, and it's because he is pretty stable, all things considered. And so you have to latch on to other negatives that are happening as a result of his policies.
0: You know, I'd be just curious how that plays out, because usually, you know, the talk about midterm elections is, and and the general election, it's a referendum on the incumbent. And in this election, it's it's like a referendum on the incumbent party, Um, not Joe Biden, who's the the face that I think more Americans know about. Um, I just It's kind of a curiosity. Ms. Piercy, have you noticed this too or am I just alone in this observation?
2: Oh, I'm glad you said it. And I, I'm glad that Kirsten agrees that he's, he's not the lightning rod that President Trump was. And the, the thing that I am seeing across a lot of the races that I'm working on, whether or not my candidates lean a, a lot more progressive or a little bit more progressive is Republicans are gonna call them socialists no matter what. And so even if they are a pro-life, pro-gun, rural, wherever Democrat, our Republican opponents are still labeling them as Nancy Pelosi socialists. And so if that is like the the message piece and it doesn't involve Joe Biden or the good things that are happening here in DC, I think that that is an easier, um, probably an easier stereotype to break down individually in each race, with each candidate based on their records.
0: I'm, I wanna ask you about some of the questions that are coming up. One theme is, you haven't talked about January 6th. Isn't that gonna have a big impact on the midterm elections? Ms. Piercy? do you think January 6th and the, the Democratic Commission that Nancy Pelosi's put together, including, I thought, you know quite riveting, uh, first public hearings with the Capitol Police, is that gonna be a big factor in a year and a half from now?
2: Look, I, I'll say this and I will say that I, I live about nine blocks from the US Capitol. So this like really is one that hits home. And I'm glad to see that the commission did have the hearings last week and that they were so publicly televised that people are, are asking about them and still remember them even a week later. I think it's tough to break through on a 24 hour news cycle and it's even tougher for that to carry through for another 15 months. Um, I do think that there will be some particular districts where it may be an issue just based on an incumbent Republican and their posture towards the insurrection and their comments in the aftermath of it, even all the way up to last week. But I don't think it's going to be a top issue for an ordinary voter who just wants to know how they're going to pay for health care in college for their kids. And, and how are they going to get the COVID shots for their other kids? Right. And so I, I hate saying that, like, to me, I would run on this all day long, but I just don't think it's realistic.
0: Ms. Kakowski, are you worried about the January 6th hearings? Do you see them as a threat to Republicans in November of 22?
1: I really don't. Um, I mentioned earlier just that that January 6th and kind of what's happened in the aftermath and where, you know, what the party breakdown and kind of the path forward. I, I I think that we're internally going to have some conversations about that. Um, But at the end of the day, the base, which is, by lar- you know the largest sector of the Republican party right now you know I don't believe that that's going to be an issue I do agree with Rebecca and I know I keep bringing up Wisconsin I've just spent so much time there politically that it's intriguing to me um, the one one of the one, excep- one, one exception that I think I agree with Rebecca on is they're going to play that January 6th out messaging out against Ron Johnson if he run- decides to run again but that's more because of his comments and his continual kind of just bringing it up and not letting it go. Um, and he's kind of embraced it as his issue. Um, and so that's that's more of the dynamic there, but I agree that there are gonna be some seats that this is going to be a thing, but writ large, no, I don't believe it, it will be.
0: Miss um, Piercy, question from one of our friends uh, who are watching us. Um, 21 progressive Democrats ran in house seats in 2020. They all lost. Um, is this a warning for Democrats on who is being brought forth as a candidate?
2: No, I, I, look, I think whoever wants to run should get to run. I think whoever runs the best campaign should be the winner. I don't necessarily know if um, those progressives were running in very progressive seats and that's why they didn't win right like if you're a progressive running in an ohio one and it's the cincinnati suburbs like good luck that's just not it's just not the right demographic for a progressive democrat as the lines are drawn currently um it doesn't mean it can't happen i just think it means we need to um allow candidates the opportunity to run their races as a as a party and as the committees but I don't actually find that that surprising. I do think that the Democratic Party is not all a bunch of socialist liberals that you know are ready to you know put all of our money in one pot and redistribute it to everybody else in America. And so that's the that's where I think we get this bad bad connotation around socialist.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't. I mean, I didn't read that question to be on that theme as much as could Democrats do better if they nominated candidates who better fit a district, like for instance. Yesterday, we saw uh, a progressive defeated in one of the primary battles in Ohio. Um, and is that a sign of the party you know, being more pragmatic, looking for candidates who fit districts?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you, you phrased it the right way. Um, yes, it's about finding candidates that fit the districts. And I think that has been the aim of the DCCC um, since, since I worked there in the 2013 and 2014 cycle. There are certainly going to be outliers. You're, you're people that are going to challenge incumbents and win like an AOC against Joe Crowley back in uh, 2018. And certainly those, those pop-outs will happen. But by and large, I do think it's finding finding pragmatic Democrats where it makes sense and finding progressive ones where that makes sense also.
0: Um, Ms. Kukowski, um, I'm sure you've feasted on the the data that Donald Trump actually increased the share of Latino um, voters, um, as did uh, Republicans um, in Florida and Texas in particular, African-Americans, particularly African-American men, also uh, seem to tilt a bit more towards uh, Republicans. Do you read something you know, more broadly into that, or is that just the 2020 election, the way it played out?
1: I don't think we know yet, which is kind of a cop-out, but not really. Um, I think that we, I think the party um, invested a lot of time and money and effort into, particularly, the Latino vote. I know the RNC um had they they really had a lot of infrastructure um, over the last four years of the Trump administration, so that could be part of it. Um, I think that 2020 and just I think COVID um, and regulations and just how they saw government in their lives impacted some of that, and I don't know if that's going to continue. Um, so kind of TBD on that. I think one race that I was kind of diving in on. On this subject is, I think Marco Rubio's re- reelect in Florida will tell us a little bit more about this. I think that the, what's happening in Cuba and just some dynamics with with. Cubans will also impact this discussion, um, the border. I think that that's why you're seeing some of this in Texas. And I think you're, that's gonna continue to be a midterm election issue is the border. And that's where I think the White House has to be very careful with the, in, this, in terms of the electorate and increasing Latino um, vote. So there's just a lot at play right now, but I, I don't know that I'm ready to say yes, you know, the Republican Party has made significant inroads in these communities quite yet.
0: So, Ms. Piercy, I've heard so many different uh, conversations among uh, Democrats, particularly those who are researching um, uh, 20. And there are a lot of explanations. And honestly, it sounds more like, well, excuses. You know, we didn't get out You know, on the doorsteps. Uh, we didn't put enough money in the right places. We didn't have the right messaging. But I'm curious, do you think liberals have been overly optimistic about the changing um, identity of America as, as the countries become more diverse?
2: Well, I think part of it goes back to what I was saying before about messaging to voters before beginning to turn them out. And so communicating with communities of color earlier is something that we are working on and are constantly working on, particularly in in a midterm where we know our turnout is probably um, going to be decreased in a way that is impactful on some of these races. But I do wanna go back to 2020. And I think that while our expectations may not have been met, I think we still increase turnout in races like in the Senate race in Arizona, in the Senate race in Nevada, places like Wisconsin with significant um, African-American and and Hispanic populations. Even Pennsylvania. And so those are places where we've made inroads and have been successful in turning out a majority of our voters in these communities of color. But it certainly doesn't mean that we should stop now. We should continue the conversation that we dropped in 2020 and start to re-educate people about, okay, now, now that Donald Trump is out of office, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening in your legislature. Here's who's running for Congress. Here's who's running for Senate and Governor. Um, here's what the Biden agenda is doing for you. Here's all the programs. Let's continue this conversation before we start knocking on your door again in September of 2022 to say, okay, now it's time to start thinking about your plan to vote and how are you going to get there and are you going to vote all the way down the ticket?
0: So my colleagues who study um, Latino voting, um, their like constant refrain is that Democrats treat Hispanics uh, Latina X as a monolith, this is foolish, and that is the opening for then a 40-minute you know, presentation about all the differences. Do you think Democrats do make that mistake? They tend to treat, you know, kind of, I mean, just to take the example Ms. Kakowski mentioned about Florida, you've got, you know, the Cuban community, and you've got other Latinos who are very sensitive to what's going on in Cuba, who are very worried about socialism, government overreach, do you think that's a mistake that democrats make the kind of overgeneralizing
2: yeah yeah i do and i think you know latinos are different in arizona and texas and florida and if we've got one latino project that's telling us x versus a very um siloed off approach at different ethnicities within the latino community that is probably a much better approach that we need to start to engage in immediately The other piece of it, I will say, particularly in Florida, I think that there is a generational divide that we need to take into account as well. And so that is Cuban-born Americans versus Cuban people that are now in America, right? So it's your your mom who's in her 60s who was born in Cuba and came here and had you and now you're a 30-year-old adult. I think that those, those generational divides also need to be examined and we need to figure out how we communicate with each of those sets of the population as well.
0: Ms. Kukowski, we've been talking about November 22, but of course, there are a couple of big elections coming up in November 2021, and early elect- early voting will be starting. And I'm I'm curious, do you think of the Virginia gubernatorial race as a bellwether for what might be happening in the midterm elections, or is that overplayed? Um, I think that I
1: think it's probably overplayed. Um, I think it's, you know, it's one of the only shows in town, and I think po- post Trump presidency, it really is the only show in, in town. Um, and so I think it's probably overplayed a little bit. I think dynamics after January 6th and post Trump, I don't know that the DC suburbs are going to be, you know, a good battleground like they have in the past when we've been talking about off year, um, Virginia races. And so I look at that and I think. I just I think we're going to need a little bit more time between the Trump presidency and Republicans taking back Northern Virginia. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic on Virginia just for those reasons.
0: Miss Piercy, I assume you agree.
2: I mean, I hope it's a bellwether. <laughs> <We're still laughs> in control in the House, so <laughs> and we have the governor's race. So I, yeah, I I I think Kirsten's right though. It is always the only show in town, and so it gets in my mind, some undue um, attention from people like us who are looking at this 24 seven, as opposed to voters who, who turn in during the last three months before an election. But yeah, I mean, Kirsten's also right that like the DC suburbs are not ready for a, a major switch here quite
0: yet. Let's talk about some of the Senate races. Uh, of course, the Senate right now is split 50 50. So. Uh, any net change uh, in the Republican direction would give them control of the chamber. Um, Ms. Kukowski, how, how confident are you that Republicans are going to take the Senate? And what races do you see as, as really kind of the, the strongest uh, path towards that?
1: Um, strongest path? Um, I think that, you know, we, I look at our... our races that I think are more open, which is Pennsylvania, North North Carolina. Um, I think Arizona will be interesting. I, you know, I think that what's happening with the border um, within the Biden administration could really impact Arizona. Um, I think the Wisconsin, you know, if Ron Johnson runs again, versus if he doesn't. And the timeline of that is very interesting. Um, the Democrats have a huge field in Wisconsin right now. And, and though they're trying to clear it a little bit um, to improve their chances. So I guess this is just a long way of saying each race is going to have very interesting dynamics. And I think it's a little too early right now um, to say, I, I'm kind of on the fence on the Senate. And that's why I've made comments about how I feel much better about the House. And I think a lot of feel much better about the house in terms of republicans taking it back i think the senate's 50 50. do
0: you feel like ron johnson would hurt the republican chances of holding the senate
1: um you know i will i i love some you know senator johnson but i feel like he's overplaying his hand on january 6th right now and i think wisconsin is different than when he ran uh in the past and i think that that 2020 showed us that. And so I think he needs to be very careful. Um, but I think there's some really good prospects if he does not run, um, including a friend of mine. Um, so, you know, I, I think that at this point, yeah, I think that he's becoming quickly more of a liability, unfortunately.
0: Thank you for that candor. That was really great. Uh, question about Georgia. Of course, um, there was a special election in 20. Now the, the normal six-year term uh, election will be coming up. Donald Trump seems very eager to get involved in that race, the governor's race, the and possibly the Senate race. Is he a plus in Georgia? Do you think if he gets really engaged and becomes kind of the face of the the election for Republicans?
1: I don't know. I I don't I don't actually know how to answer that question.
0: Um,
1: I don't know. I think it's TBD. I feel like Rebecca has has an answer. She kind of smart.
2: I don't. I was laughing about Ron, Ron Johnson, if he's going to run. I'm like, Ron Johnson is part of our victory, path to victory, right? Like Ron Johnson running for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin certainly makes Wisconsin easier. I'm sorry I didn't answer your question about Georgia, but I just thought it was worth saying.
0: OK, well, now you get your chance on Georgia.
2: OK, so Georgia, look, I think, you know, the the Trump meddling here, I think, actually helps Democrats because there are so many Republican critics of his interactions in the race both prior to the election and then in the aftermath of the election.
0: And what do you make of the Arizona race? Um, Democrats have been increasingly optimistic about Arizona, but um, the border is certainly a big issue and there are other issues in the state. Do you feel pretty confident about Democrats holding the Kelly seat in in Arizona?
2: I do. I think Senator Kelly does a great job of... um, delivering for his constituents and not being this you know dc liberal uh senator that says one thing in arizona and then says another thing here in dc so i think that he'll be able to to walk the line here and really produce you know a good agenda that arizonans can relate to i think on the other side of that 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 republican field um is just a I think it's messier, right? It's just like a, it's a, it's not a Wisconsin Democrats, right? But it's a little bit more challenging. And I think that they've also got time to consolidate and get their message message stuff together between now and the election.
0: Ms. Pierce, I want to ask you about one of the Senate races I find perplexing. <clears throat> I hear so many Democrats, <clears throat> excuse me, so many Democrats who are optimistic about uh, taking the Pennsylvania Senate race. This is a, a state that Joe Biden won by like around 1%. Do you think the the optimism is a little, uh, a little too much? I mean, it looks to me like it's going to be a fight and a tough fight, depending on who the Republicans put up. But there's some pretty good names in the Republican side that are being mentioned. Do you think the Democrats are being a little overconfident? Uh, yeah,
2: look, I think, yes, probably a little overconfident, but it doesn't mean it won't be a battleground. I think it's, a massive state with a lot of different pockets of uh, communities and it will require disciplined message in each part of the state and each part of these communities. It's also expensive, right? And I think that means that both sides are gonna have to get some real fire firepower candidates in there who can raise the millions of dollars that are needed to start communicating with voters through a probably very rigorous primary, which is pretty late, I think it's April and then all the way through to a general election. Too optimistic, probably, but we should be optimistic, right? It's an open seat and those don't come up often, particularly in a state where the margins were so slim in 2020.
0: Um, uh, Ms. Kukowski, we've got a question here. Um, with all the extreme weather lately, on like all around the country, West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, um, do you think climate is going to be a more of an issue in 2022 than we've seen in the past?
1: Real quick, before I answer that, I would just say in Pennsylvania, I'm glad it's in a mid, it's a midterm, right? I think our prospects of in Pennsylvania in a midterm for a statewide are a heck of a lot better, especially after you look at the margins from last year. So or last cycle. So that was just one thought there on climate. Um, you know, it's a really good question. And I would say if we weren't dealing with a pandemic, possibly, but I think that the pandemic, which is showing no signs of truly going away, as we all maybe thought a few months ago, I don't, I don't see anything really overtaking that because I think then the number two issue would be the economic issues that are associated with COVID, um, inflation, etc. And so I don't, it's possible, but I think there's just too many other things that are going to take precedent.
0: Ms. Piercy, do you agree with that?
2: Um, by and large, I do. I think that it will become an issue in California races in particular because of the wildfires there and their impact on the ability for farmers to go to work for people to sort of function normally. I remember last summer when the fires were raging, everybody in our LA offices had to get air filters for their homes. And so just knowing that there's a person on the ballot who will think about that has sort of like changed the way a lot of people on the West Coast think, even in places like Oregon and Washington, where it's not necessarily the fires, but it's really hot. And we need to know what the plan is. What's the plan? What is the immediate plan? Are you gonna, if you're running from air, are you opening cooling centers? How are we gonna function without, um, without somebody in office who can address some of these concerns?
0: I'm curious how you both think about uh, COVID heading into the midterm elections. On the one hand, you know, we've got uh, millions of Americans now have shots in their arms. Um, it's, a, it's about 50% of the country with at least one shot, 18 and over. On the other hand, we've got now the ratcheting up of mandates, um, and we've got some real serious debates about um, what's going on uh, with the virus itself. Um, Ms. Kukowski, do you see COVID playing in as an advantage to Republicans, or maybe not an issue at all, or one you can neutralize and, and fight on other issues?
1: Right now, it feels like it is possibly an advantage only because I feel like it plays into the motivated electorate um, comment that I made earlier. Uh, I think we were always gonna be more motivated. I think that the people who really feel very strongly against manda- COVID related mandates and what's happening around COVID feel very, very, very strongly. You see this when in school board fights with masks and education and just the grassroots kind of organizing on the right um, on this is I think, I, I think going to be a major factor um, in the midterm.
0: Ms. Piercy, do you see, how, do you agree with that? I mean, that, that sounds like a kind of a, a fairly nuanced uh, response that it's, that COVID is gonna be helpful in motivating the Republican base or part of the base. Do you see it differently? Is it helpful to Democrats in some way and how, how so?
2: I I think it's sort of the other side of that coin, whereas Kirsten talked about the policies that are being implemented that Republicans don't like as a motivator. I think that for Democrats, it's the policies that have come out of COVID relief packages, shots in arms that are motivating to Democrats and Democratic base. So it's just just a different tact at the motivation behind any COVID-related messaging. But also like, here's the reality. I don't think this is news, but it's still scary. COVID is still scary and people are still freaked out. And there's still a lot of people who don't have enough facts to make you know, decisions on politics, let alone whether or not they're going to wear a mask or get a shot or any of these other things. And so I think that there is like a broader sect of the population that this is an unknown, whereas there are like the very anti-mask, anti-mandate people that are very motivated Republican voters probably anyways, and the very motivated uh, liberal progressive people who are fine with all of the mandates, fine with all of the shots, fine with all the other stuff. Um, and I would just add real quick, Larry, I I think she, you're right, Rebecca. And I think
1: that that's why I was trying to be a little bit more nuanced in the motivation piece of it. Um, I think that we also are gonna find, I'm seeing this already in some of my races, Republicans having a divide on this. So you even in Arkansas right now, there is a Republican governor who is in a a little bit of a war with his Republican legislature um, against on legislation that is basically saying no man, no mandates related to COVID. And so I think you are gonna have people who, especially where there's Republican governors who just have, you know, they're they're in a different position. And so I think you're gonna have Republicans who are on that far right, no mandate. Um, line who are going to be pushing, they're going to be pushing for that. And it's going to have, there is going to be a little bit of a divide. Um, There are
0: 435 elections that are going to be held in November uh, 22 for the U.S. House of Representatives. And of course, plus 90%, plus 95% of them are safe. And neither party is really going to put much resources into it. So we're looking at you know, and the number tends to be a little larger this far out, but two, three, four dozen races that are on the radar, and they'll get narrowed, and narrowed, and narrowed. Ms. Piercy, could you give us a sense of how many races you think will be competitive come 2022? And which ones, you know, a handful or so that you think could really be the the tip uh, that puts Nancy Pelosi back in a speaker or, um, or Mr. McCarthy?
2: Sure. I, I do think that the size of the battlefield definitely matters when you're allocating resources from the committee standpoint here in DC, but also when you're talking to national donors or people that want to give their $5 to a race that matters if they're in a very safe seat or a very uh, safe Democrat or Republican seat. So I would put the number somewhere in between 45 and 50 at this point, just because I, I think that's probably large, but I, I do think that I would caveat that and say like, without knowing how these districts perform within new lines, it's going to be really hard to narrow things down even further than that. Um, I think that a lot of these California races, as they get redistricted and communities are moved from one district to another, that is a place where I think Democrats will have an opportunity to pick up some seats. I think that there are probably a set of the Florida-Orlando races where there are three districts sort of swirling around and we're sure there will be democratic gain there, but what does that look like and how how easy will it be and how much will we have to invest? And then I think that there are probably some, uh, actually there's gonna be a new Oregon seat, which I think will be a, a good thing for Democrats, the way that, that that map will likely shake out. And then I think you've got some races that will um, maybe surprise you. And that could be some upstate New York, that could be some Western New York, that could be um, a Colorado, something that just like didn't quite pop for us in 2020. And we needed a population shift more than we needed a different message or a different candidate. And we can sort of do a redo of 2020 with a different set of voters and see how that
0: goes. Great. Thank you. That's great. Ms. Kukowski, 45 to 50 competitive races at this point. What do you think?
1: Seems a little high for me. um, But I also think that my take is that the the congressional committee and the Republican side is very, very, very focused on the kind of crossover districts where there's, they still see Democrats in Republican territory. Um, and a lot of them are in the Midwest. And I think that, they're focused a lot on that right now this far out because of the questions that Rebecca's outlining um, in terms of redistricting. So I think right now the NRCC is probably playing with a little bit smaller map, but I think that'll increase. because so I think conserving dollars is, is very important. And I'd be interested, Rebecca, you brought up upstate New York. I wonder how the Democrats are looking at least Stefanik with everything that's been happening over the last couple of
2: years. I mean, there's going to be a primary on the Democratic side, but I feel particularly bullish about it. it's actually a race I'm working on, but maybe that's why. But it's also, you know, it's a district that I worked in in 2014 and sort of know what that North Country district looks and feels like. I think it's um, hard to take on the number three on either side of House leadership, but I do think it's something that, you know, Democrats would be foolish not to go after just based on the district dynamics alone and then sort of Representative Stefanik's tacked to the right on everything since her election in 2014 and sort of how that, how her career trajectory has has led her. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I also think some of those Western New York seats are, they're bound to get better for Democrats just because they're gonna lose a seat and they've gotta go somewhere.
0: Um, we're gonna pick this up the next time you two join us, which I hope won't be too far off. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much, Kirsten Kukowski. Rebecca Piercy. Uh, Folks, the curtain's just been pulled back. We've just walked into kind of the central committee of the Republican Democratic Party, and this has been very helpful. So thanks to both of you, and um, please do join us again. This is wonderful, and we appreciate it. To all of you, have a great day, and thanks for joining us. Bye.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you.